Starsky and Hutch debuted on BBC One on Friday the 23rd of April 1976. Little did the BBC realise they had just created a monster. Whilst American imports had been a staple of UK television since the early days of the medium, Starsky and Hutch would be one of the first, if not the first, that would be even more popular to British audiences than it was in its home country. It would create stars out of the two lead actors, Paul Michael Glazer, who played David Starsky, and David Soule, who played Ken Hutchinson. So much so that both men are still welcomed warmly whenever they enter the country, with Soule owning a small theatre in London and being granted citizenship in 2004. He regularly pops up in the most unlikely of places, an episode of Lewis, a few Holby City segments, and even won the reality show Maestro in 2008. Glazer has joined the likes of Henry Winkler and David Hasselhoff as a regular on the pantomime circuit, and the two reunite regularly for Starsky and Hutch themed events up and down the country. They were, along with Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett, arguably amongst the first tabloid TV stars, with their successes and failures being trumpeted in newspapers and magazines, and further blurring the line between pop stars and actors. Soul lapped it up, even if it cost him a few marriages and a drinking problem, but Glazer, always the more private of the two, hated it from the very beginning. By the 3rd of July 1976, the show had been moved to its 9pm Saturday time slot, where it would join Doctor Who, the two Ronnies and the Generation Game as part of BBC's winning Saturday night lineup. So successful was the show, it would command viewing figures of over 10 million for a 1985 rerun, more than five years after the show ended, and would err on the BBC until the early 1990s. Channel 4 would err a Starsky and Hutch night in 1999, which featured the first screening of an infamous banned BBC episode, The Fix. For me, personally, this show has had the biggest influence on me of any television show except Star Trek. It informed how I dressed and acted as a kid, and even today, Starsky's trademark look of denim jeans and blue Adidas are never far from my wardrobe choices. It created my love of American muscle cars, even if, as I would discover later, the 1974 Ford Torino is nobody's idea of classic Mopar, and its high-octane blend of character and action still inform my choices of entertainment. It's not as cerebral as Trek or other childhood faves like Doctor Who and Jerry Anderson's output, but it scores high in its character interplay and the relationship between Starsky, the more fun-loving and laid-back of the duo, and Hutch's more introspective and deliberate style. I was allowed to stay up late to watch it. I wore the t-shirt, read the books, bought the corgi car, had the Mego dolls, and even followed the instructions in the 1978 Starsky and Hutch annual on how to get my jeans to fit like Starsky's. It involved sitting in a bathtub with my jeans on, as I recall. I also recall my parents weren't terribly pleased with me. I have reenacted the opening credit scene with my friend Phil as Hutch walks alongside with the car with the door open, and I still run downstairs the way Starsky does in the pilot. The things you liked as a child carry the greatest weight as an adult. So join me, won't you, as I steer my implausibly tricked-out Ford Torino down some alleyways, up and down hills, slide it around a corner, and stick that magnetic red light to the roof whilst I receive a call for Zebra 3. What's the word on the street, Huggy?
Starsky and Hutch gestation period, was actually quite long and didn't even begin with a script called Starsky and Hutch. Writer William Blinn, who would go on to write Roots, submitted a spec script entitled Nightside, centred around two real-life cops who worked only at night. Initially rejected as being too expensive to film, the script was dusted off by the head of the ABC network looking for a new TV project, and he felt, with some tweaking, this show could be a perfect buddy cop show. Other elements were added later, the idea that the two cops patrolled the same area and were relatively well-known despite being plain-clothed detectives, for example. The nighttime setting was dropped as being technically too difficult to pull off and its expense. The series was developed then by Aaron Spelling and Leonard Goldberg, a duo referred to by Soul in the Word on the Street documentary as the finest purveyors of pablum on American television. And the script was originally only designed to be a movie of the week, although I don't believe nobody gave any thought to this not being a pilot. David Soule was cast instantly as Ken Hutchinson, based upon his performance in the Dirty Harry sequel Magnum Force. Soule initially wasn't interested. He wanted to play Starsky, who he felt was the better role. Soule, by all accounts, was told in no uncertain terms he would be playing Hutch. A search was then initiated to find a Starsky to complement Soule's blonde laid-back looks, an extensive casting session that only brought in Glazer at the 11th hour, and even then only by chance. Glazer needed more film in his audition reel for a lead role, and went in for the audition with little belief it would become a series. Had he known, he wouldn't have auditioned in the first place. With Starsky and Hutch cast, the actors were determined to not make a show that was cookie-cutter, and the same as all the other Aaron Spelling productions. Both actors fleshed out their characters with extensive notes on their backgrounds, adding to the elements already in the script. Soul played up the elements of Hutch that appealed to him. His intelligence, that he was the educated one, his dress sense and health food and exercise kick, but his lack of concern for material goods were all character elements Soul seized upon, whilst Glazer emphasised Sturkey's childlike sense of fun, his street smarts and his junk food habit. They both smoothed off the rough edges and worked closely together to get to the point where they could both anticipate each other's actions. Antonio Fargus joined the cast as Huggy Burr, arguably as iconic a character as the car, and Richard Ward came on board as Captain Doby. The pilot is a very entertaining piece of 70s movie making and very influenced by the then current Dirty Harry series. The plot centres around a couple of teens who are killed in a red and white Ford Torino and the duo believe they were the intended targets. At only 75 minutes, the standard length for a TV movie erring in a 90 minute slot in those days, the pilot rattles along at a fur clip but it's chock full of memorable scenes. From the car chase between the Torino and the bad guys that culminate in Starsky leaping across the bonnet, to the swimming pool scene with Starsky and Hutch emerging from the water in the pouring rain, to Hutch's leap onto the roof of his battered old Ford, to the crisp and humorous dialogue that pretty much sums up the ethos and appeal of the series. When asked by Starsky who they can trust, Hutch replies, Same people we always trust. Us. As someone who adores 70s movie making, I think this pilot holds up remarkably well. There's something about the 70s that make TV and film from that era so entertaining. It's not that long ago, so the cars and technology are completely unrecognisable, as opposed to the clunky phones and TVs of 50s shows. But it's far enough ago that the lack of many of the more modern devices seems curious. The clothes are also very wacky, although, with the exception of Huggy Bear, most of what is being worn in the pilot is still pretty normal. 
Hutch wears the same kind of jacket sported by Ryan Gosling in Drive, but Starsky's look hasn't really been perfected yet. He wears boots rather than his Adidas and adopts the fondly remembered but hugely impractical black and white cardigan and a woolly cap for most of the show. His hair is also very closely cropped, lacking the curls that he would be remembered for. Oddly, the cardigan, despite being fondly remembered, would only be worn in one other show late in the first season. The tone of the pilot film is darker than that of the series. Starsky and Hutch are clearly seen to fraternise with prostitutes, even leaving them alone and tipping them in favour of catching bigger fish, something that was met with incredulity and scorn at the time. After all, Adam Twelve wouldn't have let two prostitutes walk the streets like that, but this added to the gritty realism of the show. Starsky and Hutch protected and looked after the girls as they knew that if anyone ever got out of line, the girls would confide in them, a nifty bit of business that was groundbreaking in television at the time. Another thing that was groundbreaking was how gritty this pilot, and indeed the first couple of seasons, were. Despite being set in a sunny LA, the series never ventured to the beaches, with all the action taking place in seedy strip joints, bars and litter-strewn alleyways. Soul and Glazer also added to the realism of Hutch and Starsky wearing the same clothes rather than being fashion models. The implication from the film is also that Captain Doby is as corrupt as everybody else, something that works with Richard Ward's harder interpretation of the character, but wouldn't have fit in the series where the role was taken by Bernie Hamilton. Lalo Schifrin's score should also be singled out as being quite dark and moody, and the direction by Barry Shear employs a lot of handheld cameras, a novelty at the time. One of the major changes from script to screen was the car. Originally, Starsky was to drive William Blinn's favourite muscle car, a green and yellow Chevy Chevelle, a proper piece of American muscle. However, ABC's deal for automobiles wasn't with General Motors, it was with Ford. Customised and altered significantly, the 1975 Ford Torino, with its distinctive paint job, altered wheels and engine, quickly became an icon of the show. Glazer, however, hated the car. It was a Ford, he's been quoted as saying, so it was big and cumbersome and difficult to drive. In addition, whenever Glazer took a corner, as he did as much of the driving as was possible, Soul would skid over and end up in his lap. Nevertheless, movie magic helped make the car look, at least on screen, a fast, nimble supercar, and its appeal as one of TV's top vehicles remains unchallenged to this day. Blinn never thought the series that followed ever lived up to the promise of the pilot. Upon learning that the film was to be turned into a series, he immediately started developing ideas for the show, including one where Hutchie's divorce would be a major part of the plot. In this segment, Blinn wanted to highlight that Hutch was married to his work, but it quickly became apparent to Blinn that his credit as a creative consultant was basically a payoff. In an interview on the American Television Archive, Blinn said, It was an Aaron Spelling show. Not a Steve Bochco show. They knew what they wanted. And what they apparently wanted was minimal characterization and lots of car chases and shootouts. Blinn praised Soul and Glazer for not wanting to make that show. The duo consulted with each other over weekends, rewriting a lot of the dialogue for the car scenes and the tags. They ad-libbed like crazy whenever possible, and added as much humour and character as they could get away with. Sometimes this was with mixed results. A lot of the now-sexist attitudes and corny humour can be laid at the feet of Soul and Glazer, but the actors are to be commended for at least trying to do something with the material, and their undeniable chemistry and off-screen relationship gave Starsky and Hutch an element missing from other spelling shows. 
The first season is grittier than the rest, although Glazer would be utterly dismayed to learn that all but one of the scripts, the penultimate episode, A Coffin for Starsky, were repurposed from previous spelling productions. This would be the first nail in the coffin between Glazer and the producer's relationship. Still, there is a lot of entertaining episodes in the first season. The pilot is must-see, as is The Fix, featuring a tour de force performance from Soul as a strung-out hutch is addicted to heroin by this week's bad guy, including Jeffrey Lewis. Death Ride, Pariah, Kill Huggy Bear, Captain Doby, You're Dead and The Shootout are all standouts, but this practice that irritated Glazer so much would carry on, with The Shootout, for one, being recycled into the A-Team episode without reservations, and running would take the idea of a cop adopting a big brother role for a teen with no other role models and apply it to the TV version of Alien Nation. John Ritter guest starred in The Hostages, a tense little tale, and although there were clichés, the Torino has its brakes cut and the resultant scene of it careening down a hill as the pur try to stop it has been done before and since, but not as effectively as Soul and Glazer ad-lib to try and make the scene feel fresh. Perhaps no surprise, the best episode of the first season is the aforementioned A Coffin for Starsky, which benefits from actually being written for these actors and this show. The tone and feel of the season is best exemplified by the opening credit theme, recycled from the pilot, and the darker tone of the clips used to represent the show. You heard it just before I started this opening monologue. Most of the clips in the credit sequence come from the pilot episode, the famous shot of the Torino barreling down an alley, Starsky and Hutch emerging from the swimming pool, Starsky and his infamous Cardi, Starsky's hell for leather run down the stairs, and Hutch leaping onto the roof of his car and landing on his butt, a stunt Soul did himself and paid for later when he discovered he damaged his back. The actors' credits all come from series episodes, except for Antonio Fargus as Huggy Burr, and by necessity for Bernie Hamilton, who wasn't in the pilot. The theme for this first season is probably the best of the three different themes employed for the show, although it is not the most memorable. The show was a top ten hit, despite being hated by critics, and Glazer and Soul started winning every popular viewer award then going, including numerous Golden Globes. In the UK, it was the first American import to win a Sun Award for Best Drama. The cast then returned for a second season, emboldened by success, and it's probably the best of the four. Tom Scott was brought on board to compose a new theme, and there was a better balance between light and dark in the tone of the episodes, as emphasised by the more balanced credit sequence and theme. Here it is. Episodes from season two include 
The setup, a two-part show exploring the idea of Starsky and Hutch being unsure if justice was actually done, and various episodes started introducing these ideas of right versus wrong and justice versus vengeance. Darker themes in various episodes were contrasted with lighter shows, some of which border on silly nowadays, but are fun if you're in the mood and can accept 70s television for what it was. The high visibility of the show led to the season being launched with back-to-back two-hour episodes. The Las Vegas Strangler, with Linda Carter in a supporting role, and Murder at Sea. Both are entertaining, and in the case of Strangler, quite bloody, but both have to jump through hoops to explain how two LA cops have jurisdiction so far afield. Although, the dune buggy chase in Murder is a series high point. Gillian explores the idea that Starsky and Hutch are a little too close to the prostitutes they protect, and Starsky's Lady is a great little romance, although not as good as season 3's I Love You, Rosie Malone. John Saxon shows up in The Vampire, a silly but fun segment that ventures slightly onto Kolchak territory. Another theme of the show, the corruption of the system they are sworn to uphold, something touched upon in the pilot, starts playing a bigger role in the series, with The Specialist and Captain Mike Ferguson being examples, and there is a larger emphasis on the rights of the victim when a disabled friend of the duo is raped in a segment entitled Nightmare. Both Glazer and Soul would be given chances to direct this season, with Glazer especially proving to have a very artistic eye. The problem of recycled ideas still plagued Starsky and Hutch much to The problem of recycled ideas still plagued the show much to Glazer's chagrin, with the psychic concerning a psychic assigned to help Starsky and Hutch track down a killer, an idea that has been done in every seventies and eighties TV drama show from Erwolf to TJ Hooker, with only the incredible Hulk ever really doing it with any kind of pathos. Starsky and Hutch are guilty features two lookalikes committing crimes to discredit the duo, an idea recycled for an episode of the A-Team. However, it is an awful lot of fun watching two Torinos speeding around the city, and Hutch's wonderfully knowing line to his lookalike, you don't look anything like me, which is a good in-joke once you know he was played by Soul's stunt double. Survival, directed by Soul, is a tense and well-staged show, and Huggy Burr and the Turkey was a backdoor pilot for Huggy's own show, which barely features our heroes. In contrast, the drama and grit of certain episodes is offset by the silly fun of tap-dancing their way back into your heart and Murder on Stage 17, which highlight the series' growing propensity for having Starsky and Hutch go undercover in ridiculous outfits. The Committee was a good episode as well, but probably seemed familiar to Soul, having exactly the same plot as Magnum Force, although Starsky having to act like a bigot to get on the inside gives Glazer a good acting opportunity. The balance and tone of the series is at its best in this season, and there's probably a reason that this was the most repeated season of the four by the BBC. The hiatus between the second and third season was a time of turmoil for the production crew and cast, as Glazer, fed up with what he called the deceptive practices of the producers, started a lawsuit against Spelling Goldberg. One of Glazer's many issues were the recycled scripts, but he was also deeply aware of the amount of merchandising the show was generating. Merchandising that featured his and Soul's likeness, but from which he and his co-star didn't see a penny. Glazer had nothing to lose. He never wanted to be a star, and he never wanted to be a series lead in a television show, so the worst thing that could happen would that he would be let go from his ironclad spelling contract. As it turned out, Glazer won his case and gained a substantial rise for both himself and Soul, Glazer generously asking that whatever settlement and benefits he received would also be passed to his co-star. 
So, for his part, spent most of the hiatus recovering from pneumonia. One of the agreements settled upon during Glazer's case was that the show would be less reliant on car chases and shootouts and more about the issues affecting cops on a day-to-day basis and issue-led stories became more the norm. Starsky and Hutch would become more aware of the limitations in the third season. Whilst the me and the ethos would still be prevalent, they would realise they were limited in what they could accomplish. Were in the first two seasons they were idealistic and carefree. By season three, the job seemed to be whirring on them, and they would start to become more cynical. Spelling and Goldberg seemingly agreed to all these changes, partially because they were fed up of battling the violence on TV lobby that had been after the show since its inception. The change in attitude is evident from the get-go. The third season has a new theme, a middle-of-the-road number by Mark Snow, and the clips mixed action, including the spectacular dune buggy jump from Murder at Sea, with more shots of the duo clowning around wearing a number of spectacularly bad 70s fashions and undercover disguises. Here's the third season theme. Playboy Island, another two-hour episode, kicks the season off in silly fashion. Light on plot and high on Playboy bunnies and scenery, Joan Collins and Samantha Egger show up, but it's largely the now finely honed chemistry between Glazer and Soul that prevent this from being a padded-out waste of time. 70s TV's habit of ripping off films raises its ugly head again for Fatal Charm, a reworking of Play Misty for me, whilst I Love You Rosie Malone is a touching love story, this time for Starsky, and elevated by Glazer and guest star Tracy Brooks. But it's starting to get wearisome how many of Starsky and Hutch's girlfriends and exes end up dead. The crying child about a small child being beaten by an abusive parent and man-child on the streets, detailing Starsky and Hutch learning a colleague is a racist, are two examples of the show tackling bigger issues and, more importantly, doing it very well. Although the best example of this was an episode entitled Death in a Different Place. In this show, Starsky learns his mentor, when he was learning to be a cop, is found dead in a hotel known to be frequented by gay men and has his preconceptions challenged. Incredibly during for the time. It's hard to imagine Charlie's Angels doing a gay rights episode. What's notable about this is the actors don't sugarcoat that Starsky may have a bit of a problem with gay men until he learns someone he looked up to may have been gay. This was also the first time the show delved into what today would be called metafiction. The relationship between Starsky and Hutch was often looked at askance in certain quarters, given their closeness. And Sola said that he was very surprised that they were referred to as 
primetime homos by some executives. He's found it strange that men are not allowed to have a friend to talk to about their problems without them having to be depicted as gay. And there is a conversation between Starsky and Hutt in this episode that tackles that concept head on. This is not the only episode of the show this year to tackle its critics. The hero sees Starsky and Hutch accompanied on a ride-along by a reporter who is horrified by their methods and she writes a hatchet job on them in the newspaper. Ostensibly tackling the issue of Starsky and Hutch's violent means of letting smaller fish go to attract bigger fish, this is really a giant two fingers to the show's more vocal critics. Another show that tackled head-on a criticism of the show was Partners. Sadly, an excuse for a clip show, this episode looks at Starsky's reckless driving when it lands both men in the hospital. The episode's more of a romp, although it does attempt to tell the audience to not drive like Dave Starsky. Something that was a problem, apparently, with real-life police force members here in the UK at the time. The season also has its first year of grit, with Richard Lynch as a deranged actor in Quadromania, and Hutchinson for Murder One, in which Hutch is accused of the murder of his ex-wife. There's also some silliness episodes like Satan's Witches, where Starsky and Hutch go on vacation and stumble upon a murderous cult, is played strictly for laughs. The season also features more ad-libbing by the actors, and the tag scenes at the end are frequently left unscripted by this point, to allow Glazer and Soul room to do their own things, as well as offering further opportunities for both actors to direct, and in one instance, one of them to write, which would come to fruition in season four. There are still recycled script ideas. A class in crime about a Fagan-like teacher was done on Hunter. A body worth guarding, in which Hutch falls for a ballerina the duo are assigned to protect, was done on Magnum P.I. But overall, season three is an interesting year. But it's the most 70s of the show by far. Hutch's fashion choices get increasingly outlandish, although Starsky, despite a few fashion faux pas, manages to retain some measure of dignity. It is not, however, as many people have suggested, were the rot set in. Most people seem to prefer the earlier, grittier seasons, but seasons one and two have their fair share of silliness, just as season three has, in the excellent two-parter The Plague, one of the best and most fondly remembered episodes of the series run. Towards the end of the third season, Soul Hurt is back, resulting in some rewriting for the final five episodes of the season, including the aforementioned clip show Partners, which had Soul in a hospital bed for the entire episode. The injury, sustained on a skiing holiday, gradually exacerbated as filming progressed, and as they closed up shop for the season, Soul was admitted into hospital for surgery. For most of the fourth and ultimately final season of the show, Soul was forced to wear a back brace, resulting in him wearing more loose-fitting clothes like bowling shirts and ponchos, and giving him the appearance of being slightly out of shape. Soul also adopted an ill-advised porn stash, similar to Lee Majors in the fourth season of The Six Million Dollar Man, and this, along with the brace, combined to make him look a lot older this year. Starsky also underwent a change, albeit more cosmetic. Glazer abandoned the Adidas this year and also seems older and more worn out. The effect of these changes are that the show's itself seem more downbeat in the final season. Fans of the show actually consider some of the episodes to be apocryphal. Starsky vs. Hutch, in which Starsky and Hutch fall out over a girl, comes across more like bad fanfic than a professional episode. And Ballad for a Blue Lady burly features the characters interacting together. There's also another Huggy Burr episode, Huggy Can't Go Back, which is much better than Huggy Burr and the Turkey, but Burley features Starsky and Hutch at all. 
There's also a lot more pandering to the actors' other careers, such as numerous episodes where Soul sings, and a horrible episode, Disco Mania, which seems to think that what we want to watch is Starsky and Hutch dancing for 40 minutes, and is as dated as it sounds. The truly awful dandruff undoes all the good done in Death in a Different Place from last year by having Starsky and Hutch undercover as outrageously camp hairdressers. More episodes that were either recycled or would be recycled occur, although in the case of the game, ripped off from I Spy, at least it's done well, albeit with some illogical moments. Cover Girl, in which a model arranges a hitman to kill her so she doesn't die a prolonged death from cancer, only to have it go into remission, would later be remade as an episode of Moonlighting. Which is not to say season four doesn't have its moments. Tom Scott returns with a reworked version of Gotcha, the season two theme, and the credits were reworked again, this time highlighting the relationship more than the action, which seems to mean to the editors that we want more clips of Starsky and Hutch embracing and wearing silly undercover clothes. Here's the reworked season four theme. has memorable points. Black and Blue tackles both racism and sexism when Starsky is assigned a new partner, a black woman, after Hutch is wounded. Kim Cattrall crops up in blindfold as an innocent bystander Starsky accidentally blinds in a shootout. And Strange Justice again tackles the issue of vengeance versus justice when a cop buddy of Starsky and Hutch goes after the man who raped his daughter. It all culminates in, arguably, Starsky and Hutch's finest hour, with a four-part story that breaks the boundaries of television at the time. The first part, either entitled The Snitch or Targets Without a Badge Part 1, sees Rigger, an old friend of Huggies, trying to go straight and turning to Starsky and Hutch when he learns of a drug-dealing federal judge. When Starsky and Hutch are forced to reveal their source at the trial, Rigger is murdered, which strains their relationship between themselves and Huggy and forces them to quit the police force. Marked contrast to the earlier episodes were, in over 200 arrests, Starsky and Hutch read the perp their rights only three times. This episode follows a case from informant to trial, to devastating conclusion, without a clear win for the boys, and, and underscoring the often futility of police work. It was followed up by the two-hour episode Targets Without a Badge, split into two episodes for reruns, which carries on the story. And although some men are brought to justice and Starsky and Hutch are reinstated, the real mastermind behind the plot stands unrevealed, which then carries into the final episode of the season and, as it turns out, the series, Sweet Revenge. 
The mastermind of Targets Without a Badge, James Gunther, brutally targets the duo and guns down Starsky in a rather violent shooting, eschewing the bloodless TV shootings of other episodes, and, through use of Glazer's excellent direction slow-mo, creates an almost peckinpah-like ending for Starsky. Hutch, uninjured in the attack, spends the episode hunting the assailant down as his partner lies near death. Sweet Revenge is a stunning episode, made all the more remarkable when you consider that actually killing Starsky off was on the table. An earlier episode, Starsky's brother was being thought about as a potential replacement for Glazer, and as director, Glazer made every effort to portray the shooting as realistically as possible. As it turned out, Starsky didn't die, although he wasn't in good shape by the end of the show, an alteration of Glazer's, as in the original script, Starsky was up and around on crutches, which Glazer thought was unrealistic, given how he'd filmed the shooting. In reality, it's unlikely that Starsky would have returned to active duty after sustaining such wounds, but with Glazer and Soul still under contract for another year, it's probable that that would have happened had the series returned. And there was talk of it continuing. The Starsky and Hutch magazine reported that the actors were to return to filming for season 5 in the summer of 1979, and the open-ended nature of Sweet Revenge seems to imply the series would continue. As it stands, ABC cancelled the show, and Glazer and Soul moved on to other projects. The appeal of the show in the UK was such that the BBC continued to repeat it in a prime time slot throughout the 1980s, giving it a shelf life unheard of for a show pretty much carbon dated in the 1970s. Unusually, there have never been reunion movies, so Starsky and Hutch exist in this perfect little bubble, forever young, forever 70s. The legacy of the show is pretty good. There wasn't a series that would follow it throughout the 80s that didn't have some kind of tricked-out vehicle as the character's main ride, and the buddy cop routine would carry over into numerous shows. In its own way, it even changed television, albeit slightly, by featuring a four-part story, unheard of at the time, but standard operating procedure nowadays, although Starsky and Hutch never really gets any credit for its innovations. With Hollywood seemingly bereft of ideas, the mid-2000s saw a penchant for strip-mining old TV shows for nostalgic shit-fests, and as such, it was inevitable the Hollywood Brain Trust would turn to Starsky and Hutch to rape and pillage as they had with Bewitched and Sergeant Bilko. Even by the standards of Hollywood remakes, though, the Starsky and Hutch movie is a putrid stinker, a cesspool of lesser talented creators taking the piss out of something they have no affinity for, for the sake of cheap laughs. Slumming stars like Jason Bateman and Fred Williamson can't add anything, and Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson look suitably embarrassed in footage of them meeting Soul and Glazer. Incapable of looking beyond the surface, the movie is hideously contemptible in its regard for the intelligence of the audience. It has no understanding of the characters. Hutch is portrayed by Wilson as a borderline crook, and Starsky is anally retentive and uptight, completely betraying the characterizations of the show. And the movie Burley works as a piss-take comedy, let alone as a Starsky and Hutch prologue episode. It's pretty much everything that's wrong with modern-day Hollywood. There is a place, I think, for Starsky and Hutch on today's TV, but preferably a continuation centering on Starsky and Hutch's kids. If given the tone of, say, Nathan Fillion's Castle, I think the show could be a big success, especially if Hutch was Hutch's daughter and Starsky was Starsky's son. And given the way television has developed over the years, cases could be followed over a few episodes, although there would have to be the requisite cool car and car chases, which TV doesn't seem to be interested in nowadays. Soul and Glazer would probably be even open to cameos.
The closest I've seen in recent years to Starsky and Hutch was the movie End of Watch, which could also be the tone of the series if the producers wanted to go grittier. End of Watch is a pretty excellent movie. I urge you to check it out. Still, when push comes to shove, there's nothing wrong with having a show where the only person the heroes can rely on is me and thee. from people. I'm going to cover them now because it's always nice to respond to the email that I receive from the audience. It's uh, quite a small listening audience for this show, but they're, they're loyal and I like that. I think I'd rather have a show with a low listening, um, with low listeners, but loyal listeners than, uh, than one with high figures that I don't really give a damn about. The V episode in particular seemed to receive a lot of feedback and this one is from Tom Panaris. Andy, I have to admit that I fell behind in listening to Palace Really? They're only about 35 minutes long, dude. But once I saw that you posted an episode about V, I caught up with Gusto, binge listening to the last seven over the course of the last two days. That's an awful lot of me to listen to, Tom. I commend you. I suppose I could comment, Tom continues, on most of them, especially since most of the TV series you've been talking about were ones that I remember watching mostly in syndicated reruns as I wasn't allowed to stay up very late when I was a kid. But I'll save my comments for two episodes. First, a quick comment about your TV revamps episode, specifically with regards to Alias. I watched this show religiously in its first few seasons, but wound up renting the DVDs of the final season from Netflix, because by then I'd lost interest. But the change in direction in the middle of the second season worked incredibly well, despite the fact that ABC took a pretty big gamble when they pulled it off. The episode that you mentioned, which begins with Jennifer Garner strutting around in the lingerie and ends with a complete dismantling of the original premise, erred after the Super Bowl, which is a prime spot for any television programme, and ABC spent the night teasing viewers with commercials for the show featuring Garner walking around in her underwear. I have no complaints about repeatedly seeing Jennifer Garner in her underwear, by the way. No complaints at all. But if you think about it, putting Alias in the post-Super Bowl time slot with a huge big change episode was a bold move, and one that paid off, especially since they topped it with one of the best season finales ever. The fight between Sydney and evil France is still one of the best fights I've ever seen. And whilst the cliffhanger that didn't exactly pay off as well as it could have, at least it kept us wanting more. Just take a break from, from Tom's email. Yeah, I, I liked Alias for, for its five years. I think season three floundered considerably. It was very clear the producers didn't know exactly what to do now that they dismantled SD6 and bringing in poor Melissa George as uh, Michael Vartan's wife just meant that the audience hated her from the get-go because we wanted Sydney to get together with him. Um, and I don't blame George for that I've seen her in other stuff and quite liked her but I think she was given a very very underwritten role 
I, I like the final episode though, and um, the one hundredth episode. There's only one Sydney Bristow was really very good, bringing back Bradley Cooper, who'd left after season two. So yeah, I, I can watch Alias. Like I said, season three struggles. Tom continues on to V, a series that I was simultaneously scared to death by and intrigued by when I was a child. V, the final battle, erred when I was about seven years old, and whilst my parents didn't let me stay up to watch it, they did tape it on their brand new top-loading VCR. Thankfully, they didn't listen to my uncle who told them to buy a Betamax, and when I saw the alien birth scene at the end of part two, I freaked out and had nightmares. It replaced the Hulk versus Hulk fight from the first, which had scared me to death when I was about five, as the scurriest thing I had ever seen. Needless to say, I didn't watch any more of it, but I was always curious, and when sci-fi reran both miniseries and the TV series in my sophomore year in college, I watched all of it, much to my roommate's chagrin. The original mini was awesome. The final battle was definitely a step down, and I don't blame you for not watching the entire series. I couldn't get through it either, although I can sort of brag that I'm related through marriage to Jennifer Cook, who played Elizabeth. I never met her, mind you, and the only thing I remember about her family was her father installed my parents' cesspool. (laughs) That's a brilliant claim to fame. My parents' cesspool was installed by the father of the girl who played Elizabeth in V. Anyway, concludes Tom, V is, to me, one of those concepts that had awesome potential, but fell victim to the awfulness that is network interference, and I always wonder what the sequel series would have looked like had Kenneth Johnson been able to do what he wanted. I will say that his novel, V the Second Generation, is a decent read. It's not H.G. Wells by any means, but I read it a few years ago and I remember enjoying it. Amazon has it for the Kindle, which is how I obtained it, but you might be able to pick up a used copy on the cheap. If I come across one, I'll let you know. Well, thank you very much, Tom. I wouldn't mind reading that, just to see what Johnson does with it. I've rambled on long enough, Tom concludes. I can't wait to hear your thoughts about The Greatest American Hero if you decide to cover that. It was one of three shows I was allowed to stay up and watch as a kid, the other being Chips and the Dukes of Hazard, and was my absolute favourite, so much that I have the Joey Scarberry album and theme song on LP and proudly wear my Greatest American Hero t-shirt whenever I can. All the best. Tom. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Grace, the American Hero is a distinct possibility. I watched a couple of episodes on YouTube, and I think it stands up pretty well. I think it's a very entertaining show, but Stephen Cannell's stuff tends to hold up quite well. Why they didn't call the sequel V2, I'll never know, is uh, an email from Jack Bond. Hello, Jack. Hello again, Andrew, he says. I find I have eight years on you, but I can't claim that that would have made me any more mature back in 1983. So it'll have to be changing tastes why I was only lukewarm to V whilst watching the miniseries, the sequel, and the first few episodes of the TV series. Perhaps it's because the first advertisement over here were teaser shots of the motherships gliding over the cities, and I never forgave it for not being Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, which began the same way, and which, like every science fiction book with enough pages to hold its covers apart, had sold its filming rights post-Star Wars. Come to think of it, Starlord did an article about a possible Childhood's End movie with artwork that looked like a premonition of V. I had a theory that miniseries were put and I can't believe they did that on television moment in the first episode and the hopes viewers would tell everyone the next day, you should have seen it, and draw in a few more viewers for the second night. Gunter Kinty's foot started it all off in Roots, Jane Badler of course, and the quick shot of decapitation by Samurai Sword in Shogun, although all the talk I heard was when the Lord marked Blackthorn as his property the way a dog would. Oh, I like Shogun. 
For the final postscript, search out Larry Niven's book, Playgrounds of the Mind. Towards the end of the chapter, The Lost Ideas, he writes about his work in Hollywood, including two occasions when he and co-author Jerry Ponell were called in in a last-ditch attempt to make sense of something. The first case, the movie The Watcher in the Woods. The second case, V, the TV series. I won't spoil the solution, but it would have been cool. Keep up the good work. I promise I'll try not to write so often. Jack, write more! Don't write less. Why don't you should write more? Jason Trenner's the last emailer for today. V for, well, it isn't Combattler V, that's for sure. I think G- Jason just makes references that go right over my head, because he opens with, yeah, I couldn't resist that. On the topic of this episode, Jason says, I have to admit I don't really remember V. It sounds like an interesting show that had a vision and a point. Well, at least until the show creator left. It lost what made it special then. The remake, not so much, as it never really had anything special to start with. That one could have used Combatler V, Mazinga Z, Shingeta, the Gundams, and I'm sure a boatload of giant robots. And seeing Combatler V use their giant yo-yos on a mothership for the V remake probably would be fun. <clears throat> Can't wait to see what else gets reviewed in the palace. Uh, thank you, Jason. I have no idea what Paragraph 2 was about. <laughs> but I'm sure that the audience do, and that's all that matters. Well, uh, I'll knock it on the head there. That's the email bag for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode. A little bit off the wall, no science fiction or really genre, although I suppose detective shows is a, a draw a genre in and of itself. But for all those people that said they, uh, they can listen to me talk about 70s TV all day, that one was for you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.